1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to World Christianity and New Books Network. This podcast is for those who would like to explore the expansive discourse on world Christianity as a global phenomenon and as an emerging field that examines Christianity's cross-cultural, diasporic, and transnational manifestations by paying close attention to the underrepresented and marginalized expressions of the Christian faith in the global South. Thank you for joining me today. I'm very excited to share this interview with you all. I'm your host, Byung-ho Choi, from Princeton Theological Seminary.
0: And I'm your host, Sanyong Lee, from Princeton Theological Seminary.
1: The Mission of Apollo, Kivabulaya, Religious Encounter and Social Change in the Great Lakes from 1865 to 1935, written by Emma Wildwood and published by James Curry Press, imprint of Boydell & Brewer in 2020, takes a close look at the life of Apollo Kivabulaya that uh, interrogates the role of Indigenous agents that signaled change under colonization and the influence of emerging polities in the practice of Christian faiths, and furthermore asks important questions such as what historic social processes and cultural motivations provoked religious, and social-political change in colonial East Africa. Kivabulaya was a practitioner of Indigenous religion and a Muslim before he became a Christian missionary from Uganda to Toro and Ituri. He is still admired as a churchman and a missionary in the Anglican churches of Uganda, Congo, Tanzania, and Kenya, and is a significant civic figure in social school curricula in Uganda. This monograph provides insight into the religious encounter in the Great Lakes of regions of Africa in which individuals like Kivabulaya remade themselves through conversion to Christianity and reordered social relations through preaching a transnational religion that brought technological advantage. Over the course of our conversation today, we will take a closer look at this important book, how it sets out to make a significant contribution by offering a new lens in approaching the history of the Northern Great Lakes region of Africa by interrogating the role of Indigenous agents such as Kivabulaya as harbingers of change and how scholars and students of world Christianity stand to benefit from this book. To learn more about these issues and more, please please stay tuned and we hope you enjoy the book and our conversation as well.
0: Today, we are privileged to talk with Emma Wildwood, the author of The Mission of Apollo Kibabulaya: Religious Encounter and Social Change in the Great Lakes from 1865 to 1935. Emma Wildwood is a professor of African religions and world Christianity in the School of Divinity at the University of Edinburgh. With Dr. Chow, she serves as the co-director of the Center for the Study of World Christianity, and she is also the co-editor of the journal Studies in World Christianity by Edinburgh University Press. She is currently the co-editor of the book series Religion in Transforming Africa, published by James Curry Press and the member of the editorial board for a number of peer-reviewed journals. Dr. Wildwood's work focuses on religious encounter in South Saharan, Africa, particularly Christian conversion and the growth of mission-initiated denominations between 1800 and the present day. Her research has also examined the impact of migration on Christianity identity in the Democratic Republic of Congo, East African revival, and on migration and Christianity in Africa and the United Kingdom. Her experience teaching in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Uganda, and Cambridge has contributed for her to teach and write on a wide spectrum of issues, such as the history of Christianity in Africa and African religious diversity. Her first monograph is Migration and Christian Identity in Congo, published by Brill in 2008. Her co-edited volume include The East African Revival, History, and Legacies with Kevin Ward by Routledge in 2012, Foundations for Mission with Puneel um, Rajkumar by Regnum Edinburgh Centuries series in 2013, and Ecumenism and Independence in World Christianity with Alexander Chow by Brill in 2020. Her most recent publication is a source book, The Archive of Ugandan Missionary. In this book, Professor Wildwood edited and translated the writings by and about Reverend Apollo Kivabulaya.
1: So welcome back, Dr. Wildwood, to New Books in World Christianity. And thank you so much for returning to our podcast uh, to discuss your book.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me again. Uh, It's good to be here.
1: Now, this is your second time coming on our World Christianity podcast. And in the previous one, we talked about the book that you co-edited with your colleague, Dr. Alexander Chow, uh, titled Ecumenism and Independency in World Christianity. I know that during the previous podcast you also had the opportunity to share a little bit about your background um, but for our listeners that might be just tuning in and new you, uh, to your work do you mind briefly introducing yourself again um, your academic background and how you became interested in your field of study
2: yeah thank you very much so i'm originally from the north of england a county called yorkshire Uh, And I studied uh, my first degrees in Edinburgh and then I went to work uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I was teaching there um, in a theological college run by the Anglican Church um, and supported by the Church Mission Society. Um, and taught there for about seven years. I spent some of that time in Uganda as well. That's what's now Uganda um, Christian University and Namagongo Martyrs Seminary. And I, it was on the back of, of that experience of teaching that I decided to do um, a PhD in uh, the migratory patterns uh, and how they helped uh, develop uh, church affiliation and how they changed the nature of people's uh, Christian affiliation and changed their church. So that I came back to do that at Edinburgh in the Centre for the Study uh, of World Christianity, uh, which I now
0: direct. Mm. Thank you for sharing, um, Dr. Wildwood. I would like to um, also invite you to tell us more about how you came to write this exciting monograph let me remind the title again for the audience, The Mission of Apollo Kibabulaya, Religious Encounter and Social Change in the Great Lake from 1865 and 1935. So how did the idea develop and what was your research process like and what archives and source, source materials did you turn to? And we would greatly appreciate if um, if we could hear more about the archive of a Ugandan missionary, uh, the source book that you utilize and Um, You have recently published. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I first met
2: uh, Apollo Kivubulaya in 1993. I was introduced to him at his grave, um, which is in Imboga in the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, when I had just recently arrived, and I was taken then straight up the hill from. His graveside, which lies outside the cathedral in Umburga, um, to meet uh, one of his children, Uh, not actually a a kin member, but a person who had, uh, as a young man, uh, been trained by Apollo, been taught by him in school, and also become uh, an evangelist uh, and, and worked his whole life for the church. By that time, he was a very elderly gentleman. And so he regaled me with stories about Apollo Kivu um So it was that encounter that um, was, was profound uh, because I realized this was a person who was imp- very important um, to the uh, Anglicans in that part of Congo and yet i didn't immediately think of him as a research project in fact when i was doing my doctorate um i was actually looking at a much later period some 30 years after he died and so i kept a- avoiding um asking people questions um about him because i knew that people were very keen to talk about him and very proud um of their association with him and that if Many of the, his his first contacts, of course, had, had died by this st- stage, but their children and their associates and so forth um, had heard so many stories about him that I was often trying to avoid hearing about Kivabulaya. In the end, I decided that this was actually quite important, the fact that two or three generations later, people were still referring to him, telling me about his character telling me about events surrounding his life suggested that um, he he was really important. And so after I'd done my PhD, there were some sort of articles that I was writing or conferences I was attending um, where there were there were various themes. And I often came back to um Kivabulaya to think round these themes and very slowly the penny dropped that really he deserved another um, look extended look at his life, and you asked about the sources um, as well as these memories um, that I that I heard of. I spent quite a lot of time in uh, Makerere University archives, um, and I'd like to just before I forget thank uh, Makerere University Library for giving me the permission to put some of their sources. Uh, in a in a book in a textbook that um, it makes them more widely available, um, but I, I was there and I found a lot of uh, Kivubalaia sources um, in the late nineties, and I've been slowly working through them. And there are two boxes in particular that are quite important, and I with George Mpanga um, have selected them, ordered them, translated them. Um, they are Apollo's notebooks and diaries and correspondence. Um, and they're also uh, written but unpublished memoirs by uh, people um, in Uganda, a couple of people in Uganda, uh, including the first Ugandan Anglican bishop, Aberibalia. Balia. Um, and also um, some important oral testimonies that were recorded in the 1950s. Um, so this, this enabled me to really um, hear, if you like, Apollo's voice and those of around him, whilst also turning to missionary and colonial um, archives uh, as well to sort of triangulate what was going on and place it in a wider context.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Doctor Walbur, for that um, a deep insight into the process and also um, how this um, how you utilize these various resources. And as we take a deep dive into your book, we can see that um, your book is comprised of seven chapters uh, plus an introduction and a conclusion. Um, and also entailing a very lengthy list of archives and interviews and literary resources you turn to uh, for your book. Each chapter is set in a chronological order and partitions according uh, to important and precise time frames um, that not, not only highlight the life of Cuba but important themes and events that was taking place in the context of East Africa. Um, in an Understanding the overall objective of your work, uh, you write that in your book, uh, that your book is, quote, uh, written as a social history of religious change, combining the social history of the Northern Great Lakes region with a cultural history of the motivation and values of Indigenous agents, and reconceptualizing the historiography of African agents in spreading religious change. By examining a single individual who demonstrates the impact of macro movements of social and religious change at a micro level and the intrusion of small-scale change on wider historical process. End quote. So I think it is important to make it clear for our listeners that your intent is not to write just another hagiography, but rather your work is an invitation for readers to understand the religious historiography of the Northern Great Lakes region and the role of Indigenous Christian agents during a time of critical change in this region, you know, while also examining the social origins of converts, the political economies from pre-colonial authority to colonial administration, and the Indigenous religious encounter with Christianity and missionaries. And in the introduction of your book, you lay some important foundations regarding your work and you help us, you know, uh, familiarize ourselves with some of the frameworks, you know, approaches and methodologies you employ. But in order to fully embrace our conversation today, and especially for our listeners tuning in that might be new to um, this context, um, I was wondering, Dr. Wildwood, if you could first help us situate um, this northern Great Lakes region. Um, and more specifically, the region of Buganda you know, what sort of religious change was taking place prior to and during this time of uh, Kivapulaya?
2: Yeah, thank you. I think this is an incredibly exciting hi- historical period, and I, I really enjoyed learning more about it um, as I did the research for this book. And there's some excellent uh, material um, out there. Um, First of all, uh, t- to say that uh, Kivabulaya was born in uh, the kingdom of Buganda, a pre-colonial kingdom. And for any Luganda speakers out there, um, his name is often pronounced in Luganda as Chivabulaya, um although Swahili and other um, East African language speakers tend to, tend to give it a hard K. Um, but he was born in this kingdom um and we know uh, quite a lot of, about this kingdom historically at the time he was born which was in the 1960s and uh, 1860s um he was um uh, the the king or the kabaka of uh, buganda was a very um astute King uh, very very able called uh, Mutesa. and he was interested in expanding the the borders of buganda it had already become probably the most powerful uh, kingdom in the region and had certainly um sort of expanded into what were the, the previous powerful kingdom uh, but the kingdom of Bunyoro where um and there was a lot of fighting along those borders because of that. Um, and Mutesa was also looking for international allies. He was, um, working with, um, Arab traders from Zanzibar, um, who came from all over the sort of Arab world and, uh, into the, uh, sort of, uh, Indian, um, uh, Southeast Asia area. And, um, that they were trading uh, ivory, that uh, they were also trading um, people, so they were part of a, a slave trade. And Mutesa was interested in their e- the way that they could help economically, and he was also interested in their philosophy and their religious beliefs. So at the court of the Kabaka, um there was a real interest in learning arabic in learning swahili and in le- learning islam um, at the same time as maintaining um, traditional uh, beliefs and practices uh, ensuring uh when for example there was um a, a raid on a neighboring kingdom that the-, the-, the kabaka would uh, go to a particular um shrine uh, some way out of the city um with his retinue uh, and uh, to ensure that the the god of war um was uh, properly um, negotiated with to ask for um you know good favor so that all this that is coming uh is is happening at the time Kivobulaya is born. Um, He is born Waswa, that's his his first name. He's one uh, of twins and he tells us a little bit about the twin customs. We know also that his twin died. he found, he seems at least in later of life, as he looks back on his life, to have found the twin customs quite onerous, the things that he and his parents were expected to do. Um, and this seems to be possibly one of the reasons why Christian conversion was attractive. There are a number of others. In the uh, 1870s, um, uh, Church Missionary Society missionaries arrive Uh Ang- an Anglican mission society, although quite ecumenical, often um, and they are followed eighteen months later by the White Fathers or the Missionnaires d'Afrique, um, a French or mainly French um, mission society that had been established um, a decade or so earlier. Um, and again, there the, the these missionaries are welcomed at court. Um, as part of this engagement with uh, the wider world that Mutesa interested in as part of his um, political policy. And he's interested also in what they offer his kingdom. Uh, and one of the missionaries is a man called Alexander Mackay, who's uh, a Scottish um from from the north of Scotland um was an engineer and famously uh, intrigued and fascinated the court by you know showing them how watches worked and making them a um a basic we- weaving tool so that they could weave their own cotton instead of buying the cloth from uh, the Zanzibari traders which you can imagine uh ha- caused some tension and at the same time these missionaries are translating, uh, translating the Bible, translating the catechism, uh, and they have pages at court coming to them. This was quite a common um, form of education. Uh, young men were sent to, to the court, or they were sent to chiefs in their local areas, or to, you know, a, a prominent uncle, to learn uh, about life. Um, and, and so these these pages were attaching themselves in one way or another to some of the missionaries as well as to some of the Muslim teachers to learn more about these religions. So there's this great sense of intellectual curiosity, of exchange, of language learning, uh, all sorts of things going on at court. But Kibagulaya isn't there. So we know quite a lot about the court. And one of the things I I try and say in this book is, well, we know that this uh, interest... and and final embrace of Christianity in in, in the court led to um, Christianity becoming very important uh, from the turn of the century and particularly Protestant Christianity as the group that was in the Ascendant um, all all became part of the Anglican Church. But what's happening to ordinary people and Kivabulaya lets us know a little bit why ordinary people might be attracted to this. It is possible, and this is a real hypothesis. It is possible that Kivubulaya lost his freedom in some way. He may have been enslaved. He may have been so impoverished that he joined. Uh, one of these labour bands that were formed of people who had been raided. We're not. It, it, it's not certain from the records. Certainly, those looking back trying to give him a higher social status, and uh, than than I think is possibly merited. So I think he comes into the orbit of the court. Um, to gain work, uh, he works on, on the roads. Um, the, the Kingdom of Buganda had a, a very good infrastructure um, and he's working on the roads um, and he, he may not be entirely uh, a free person at this point. Um, um, and he, but this is how he comes into the orbit of people who are reading the Bible, praying in a new way, Bringing in new ideas about what it is to be, uh, to to engage with the supernatural, with the spiritual, and also what it is to be a person. I mean, there are lots of different ideas swirling around at court, and every so often the Kabaka attempts to put a lid on it and ensure that he has authority. So um, it's fa- famous uh, that there's actually a Martyrs' Day now uh, in in Uganda in June, which Uh, commemorates the deaths of a number of pages who were killed for their Christian beliefs. But a decade prior to that, there had been a number of um, Muslim, uh, keen, young Muslim pages who had placed the authority of Islam over above the authority of the Kabaka. And they too um, had met a a, a sad end uh, and were executed um, for some of the decisions they took in that light does that uh, give you enough to be going on in terms of background
0: yes yes thank you um, for drawing this helpful map for us and for our listeners to understand the background and as we explore your book further this is very helpful and um, just a uh, Quick follow-up question if I may, Dr. Wildwood. Um, I was wondering if you'd like to um, briefly speak on uh, your methodological use of biography, especially as you draw attention to the life of Apollo um, Kivabalaya and how do you utilize um, the biographical method for your work and what were some of the elements you considered uh, vital in this method?
2: thank you very much yeah i thought long and hard about using biography uh, and also how to use biography because clearly it's a, a quite a capacious genre it's uh, a, traditionally historians were very nervous about it but more recently we've seen um, a, a real renaissance of using biography for all sorts of different reasons so sometimes um, as a to get to those life stories and they're often called that of of ordinary people um you you have and 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 i feel like this is partly what i'm doing with uh he 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 becomes in some ways extraordinary you can talk about that but he seems to be a very ordinary person he is not a, a, a chief he's not really of chiefly stock although he does remind uh, people that his mother had some links back into the court uh, uh, of Bunyoro but she she or her ancestors had clearly moved away from that um, and uh, you know so in some ways why do, we have a glimpse into an ordinary person's life and we don't often get that at this period uh, and it's partly because he, he the the course of the life of of, uh, of his life that it took. So he says something about the ordinary. I think another way that biography has been used has been one person connecting with um, different parts of the globe. We've seen that used in sort of transnational or global histories. And although he doesn't really uh, travel any further than about. 200 miles or so from the place he was born. Um, He's writing uh, to the UK and he's engaged with uh, these European missionaries and so on and so forth. So again, he's straddling um, these uh, scopes, uh, both very, very local, working very, very locally, but connected or widely thinking about wider and newer um, issues. Um, I also felt like I had to unpick in this process the biographies that had been written beforehand, not because they are, are necessarily bad. In fact, there's a very good one by Ann Luck, that was written in the 1960s, um, but because they were, they had a different purpose. So those ones written from the 1920s, 1930s by Lloyd uh, uh, A. B. Lloyd, who was a CMS missionary, and others, do have this sort of hagiographical intent. They want to show Kibulaya as um, an, uh, a, 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 as a, a very, very good example of what we would expect. Um, African missionaries to look like, and an example that Europeans ought to follow, which kind of changes a little bit um, the way in which missionary biography have often been thought of. So this is very interesting to me, why people wrote biographies in the past and what they were saying about Apollo. But I was really interested in um, saying something um a little bit different putting him in his context um either that was considered unnecessary in these early biographies or it was done partially so we know something about the uh, Buganda context from Anne Luck's book but, but we don't know very much about Fort Portal and we really don't know what's happening in Congo where he ends up working and so um it, it was kind of how to bring together this sort of social history that I wanted to write, whilst being um, utterly open and honest that there was a central set of documents that revolved around one person, one person and his associates, and I try and draw them in, and they're certainly part of the source. But that the way of doing this, uh, it, his sources were so rich that, you know, one had to put him at the centre um, as, as, as a kind of uh, uh, honest way of approaching this, I felt.
1: Well, thank you so much for that um, detailed answer, Dr. Walvo. It really helps us to put into perspective um, how you utilise this by our biographical method into your work and as we uh, look deeper now as we go enter into deeper into the book um, chapter one you title as the afterlife of saint canon apollo 1933 onwards Um, And surprisingly, it does not begin right away in uh, chronological order of Kivabulaya's life. But instead, I found it very interesting, um, Dr. Walwa that you first talk about how Kivabulaya is remembered and memorialized it seems very intentional that you would first designate this as the first chapter rather than as your last. Um, so may I ask, what is the reason behind this decision of putting this uh, in the very first chapter? And you know, what are some of the unique differences um, you were able to find um, to how Kiva Bulaya is remembered and memorialized in the northern Great Lakes regions compared to um, the Western missionary literature?
2: yeah thank you um yes this was very intentional and a little bit of what i was saying before of of realizing that i was standing on the shoulders of other biographies that were written for for other reasons and that's actually interesting they develop you know it's we see the person the reason why uh, apollo kirubalia remains well known in east africa at least um is because he was a church founder which is how the Congolese remember him, a remarkable uh kind and loving individual who brought Christianity to uh the um, Semeliki escarpment and the Aturi rainforest. And so that that's one set of memories. Then I, I discovered as I was doing this research and spending time in Uganda I met um some uh clergymen in the uh the the Church of Uganda um and they were very kind to me. They're mentioned in, in the book. And they were very they were also very interested in promoting Apollo Kivubulaya as an example of how to be a good clergyman. So that was another interesting thing. And they were proud that he was Muganda. Um, and, and so there was this element of sort of uh, sort of national pride that that comes in, and that comes in actually as and the documentation around his death as well. Um, but then a, a slightly different group of people some of whom were ordained um but was the East African revivalists and this helped me make sense of some of the things apollo uh, said uh, towards the end of his life but they really um were the, the East African revivalists had a commitment to spread christianity across east africa so they really saw him as a missionary that they should follow and and some of them actually wanted to follow him into congo and ended up following him in following his example in Rwanda because they couldn't they weren't allowed to go into Congo, um, because of the um, the, the, uh, the the policies of the um, Belgian administration at the time, um, and so they're seeing him as not not a Muganda clergyman primarily uh, although they knew he was uh, but as a a missionary to all nations, which was their real emphasis uh, on uh his life and work, and I think comes close to how he saw himself as well um and but uh, the, the, the East African revival really took off in the year that he died, so you know although he knew some of those early um instigators of the revival, like Simeone and Sabambe, who calls his son Apollo after uh, his son becomes the prime minister of um, Uganda and has only quite recently died. Um, But they they have a slightly different vision. And then, of course, we see um, that missionary support, um, which fades away by the 1960s, Kivabalaya has largely been forgotten in the Western world, but I was talking to Professor Andrew Walls shortly before he died um, and uh, giving a presentation uh, about Apollo Kivabalaya, and he said that he remembered um, pre-Second World War In Sunday school, being introduced to this figure of Kiva Bulaya. So those early biographies um, in in the late 1920s and early 1930s, and then on, um, they get kind of recycled and repackaged into Sunday school material and so forth. You know, people, people like Andrew Walls could still could remember that kind of lesson from Apollo going on, but but by the 1960s, that's gone and most people um haven't heard of him um at least not in the UK um so those were the those were the reasons of trying to pick my way with who who is this person and the fact that memory is very important and um you know are, we we learn new things about people but we it was also an attempt to respect the way people had remembered him in the past as well not to um necessarily um question it but to say that, that these memories come from particular places and of course he be, he he's becomes unfashionable um, from the sort of 1960s and 70s onwards, when we get much greater focus in the scholarly world on African independent churches or initiated churches and their leaders who ing- are indeed very, very interesting uh, people and very interesting movements. Um, but I thought it was time to kind of go back and look at a figure um, who uh, you know worked very closely with a European missionary society.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you, Dr. Wildwood, and your answer, and then certainly your chapter one, really uh, makes uh, readers excited about uh, reading uh, the following chapters. And the next two chapters uh, focus on Kivu Bulaia's early years, and chapter two specifically looks at the time period between the 1860s um, to the 1880s from Kiva Bulaya's birth and his family status as commoners, to his first encounter with Islam. And even though there are many things we can talk about in this chapter, uh, what I found rather fascinating is the significance of Kibabalaya's birth and the training he received from a healer or Basawo. So um, Dr. Whitewood, uh, could you expound more on the significance of being born as a twin, even though you already uh, mentioned briefly earlier and how that identity follows through one's life and what role did Kibuli's twin status and healer parentage had have on him after he became a christian
2: yeah thank you very much so um twins were highly regarded um in uh, in the kingdom of uh, buganda and Uh, And in other areas. Um, And it's if anyone knows um, the stories of of places in Nigeria where twins were so uh, people were so concerned about twins that they killed them at birth. This is quite different. That didn't happen. But there's this sense that they are important, potent, mysterious and that one needs to accord special significance to twins, but one needs to do certain things to ensure that their potency um, doesn't uh, have negative consequences, I think. So one, when, uh, uh, there are special names for twins, there are special names for parents of twins, there are special names for the children who follow twins. Uh, and, and we see this different names in different parts of the Great Lakes region. And so, um, you know, uh, women who bore twins uh, had certain licenses, if you like. Men who bore twins had um, to do certain uh, uh, traditions, uh, sacrifices, um, libation after battle, after raids at certain points in, in their lives they had to dress differently, parents had to dress differently, their hair was different and so forth. And twins had to be buried at a certain time if they died. If one of the twins died, as with uh, Kim Willi's sister, they, they, they couldn't be buried in the normal way. Um, and we see this importance of twins going right the way through society. So the Kabaka, even if he wasn't a twin, had a twin symbol uh, in uh, his umbilical cord was dried and so forth so you know it, it it tells us something about the way of viewing the world as in relation as connected as as people being um individual to use the anthropological term rather than individual um uh, and, and this, I think this is really important, but for those who, uh, so it gives us a really important glimpse into society and into how people viewed personhood. But it beca- it seemed to, at least the, the way Kiva Bulaya talks about it later on his life, seems to have been quite onerous. It was hard. And so he talks about leaving the Impisa, the, the customs of twins, when he adopted the dini or religion of First Islam and then and then Christianity. We don't know, sadly, very much about uh, how closely or for how long he was engaged with um, Islam. Although we have some hints. Um, so, so, so this idea uh, of, of Twinship of being onerous and being wanting to set down these customs is something that he writes about. Um, and so this, and it's a, another reason why he takes on new names. I think so that the was waswa name just becomes sidelined, and this is also quite common um, uh, we, uh, in the Western world, we're accustomed to you know starting out life with a name with a couple of names and not really changing them except in very particular circumstances much more common for people to change their names and switch and to find names that are more appropriate for who they are to be given names by other people and that kind of thing so so this um this identity is one he wants to set this aside but perhaps never quite relinquishes it he was he, you know he he was proud in some ways that he was a twin he just found the the customs onerous the healing thing is is much more interesting and you know again um by the time he's talking about being a healer he has rejected a lot of the practices and he is unconvinced by some of the practices some of the divining practices and yet clearly his healer his healing follows through him through so he looks out for other forms of of healing he takes on biomedicine and we do see him praying for healing for people offering them simple remedies like coffee um you know uh, washing in the river this kind of thing those are those are rarer occasions than when he's giving out you know malaria tablets or iodine for cleaning wounds and that kind of thing. Um, but this this idea that um, he has set down certain um divination practices but, te- but continued with certain physical cures um I think is, is, is quite an interesting one. Um, which pops up both at the beginning and the end of the book.
1: Now, segueing into the third chapter, uh, Dr. Wildwood, which you have titled Munumbi, A Foot Soldier in Battle and Evangelism, 1884 to 1895, we see a turning point um, in Kivabulaya's life in the midst of various social and political changes, especially in the midst of the internal Buganda Wars. And I see uh, the turning point of his life As his baptism, um, his life before and after being enrolled for baptism in 1894, you know, know, how he changes. um, A lot of things are changing drastically. So, Dr. Wildwood, could you speak more on what was taking place prior to his decision to receive? to receive baptism? And what sort of changes did he make? Or in your words, what sort of reshaping took place um, in his lifestyle, behaviour and occupation after um, his baptism?
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, So these prior um, influences, I think, are are important, and, and definitely war is one of them. So for those of you you know, people who are listening who don't know much about this period. Um, there, there's a... Um, this period, 1884 to... Well, really, 19, 1891, two, 3, depending on which ones you're actually talking about. It's a period of of intense... Um, uh, conflict, really, for the Buganda kingdom. And it... It falls along religious lines. So those parties who begin to see things differently um, associate together along religious lines. So there is a a traditional party who want to keep things pretty much as they've always been uh, and make make sure that the the worship or veneration of um, a number of Ganda deity Uh, is central to that. There's uh, the Muslim faction who are turning to Muslim practices and seeing that being the most important and wanting to maintain these allies with the Sultan of Oman uh, in Zanzibar. And then there's the Christian faction, which eventually splits into two factions, Protestant and Catholic, that want to um, develop the kind of um, technologies that Mackay is bringing through, thinks those are important, want want connections with France and and Britain and with mo- Europe more generally, and think that Christianity is probably the most influential religion, that it kind of, there's things about, they've learned, that make it kind of uh, the one to follow, if you like. So there's no doubt that The political and the religious and the social are are completely intertwined in this war. And in some ways, that's an internal response because um, the Baganda expected their rulers to um, bring political decisions for the well being of communities to the shrines of the deity. And so Uh, Here we so so this idea of politics and healing, uh, communal welfare and so forth being intimately tied up in a spiritual world was not new to the Ganda. What they were discussing was how it should be in this in this particular moment. And one of the problems here was the international slave trade. That it was, uh, although the Ganda kingdom looked firm, it was. Kind of shaking its foundations. Uh, people, ordinary people like Kublai, couldn't be assured of their freedom. They couldn't be assured. Women certainly couldn't be assured of their freedom. Uh, all these things were sh- were shaking the foundations of uh, the kingdom, and people were saying it's not good enough. Uh, there's a very good work by Holly Hansen where she talks about this sort of habit of thought and saying the Ganda were already looking for something, and so. Kivabulaya is caught up in this kind of looking for something thing, and he dips in and out of various things. Uh, So he had had to observe Ramadan, and by the time he's looking back on his life, he's saying, yeah, I didn't like the fasting bit. Um, And uh, and he, he may well have fought for some time on uh, the Muslim side, although we're not, it's not very clear, um, because I also think he po- possibly joined a Catholic band before. So there's certainly things coming on, but he's on. He's at the tail end of all this is happening. You know, the big poli- poli- He's not near these big political movers and shakers, but he does get closer to them. So uh, he, uh, what, the the wars are just about settled down, but there are a couple of. Um, uh, the internal wars have settled down, but there's some wars with the Banyuro, some battles with the Banyuro. And it's almost certainly that after one of these battles, Kivul comes back and says he wants to be baptised. And precisely at these battle uh, amongst the soldiers, there's a kind of revival going on. So we, I, I'm trying to pick away this language of violence uh, and also this uh, hope for peace and prosperity, and a better situation in it all. Um, and the the group that come out of this well are the ones that have allied themselves with the British Imperial East Africa Company, and have used the Maxim gun against their, their enemies. And, and it's, it's funny because CMS missionaries are actually, one or two of them are actually involved in the fighting. And they're also writing about how worried and appalled they are that there's so much violence and yet so much talk of peace. So you can really feel people struggling with these things and Kivu begins to struggle on this. And when he comes back to um, what, what's now Kampala area, to Mengo and says... Um, you know, he talks about God seizing him, this desire to be baptised, sudden he finally gets it and and he's seized with this, even though, uh, so it's quite a violent word and it's a word that's used for possession. It it can even be used for rape or, or that kind of thing. But it's kind of like, I've been taken over, I can't do anything else. So although he took his time, it was difficult for him to read at first because he'd never read before, because the Bible was in Swahili that he didn't know. That um, he was on the outskirts of this this company, he's moving closer. And by the time he reaches baptism, it takes him a while to have sponsors. But one of the most prominent chiefs of the kingdom, Hamon Mukasa, um, who's secretary to the first minister and then becomes a, a very very prominent chief uh, who's leading the Mengo Christian Church Council, uh, who's translating the Bible in t- in or helping with the translation and writing a commentary on Matthew's gospel. It's him who becomes uh, Apollo's godfather. And so there you see him moving into a much more kind of um, connected role with some of the big movers, political movers and shakers, who by this time are
0: Anglican Christians. Mm-hmm. Wow, thank you for uh, your detailed answer. And that really, the, your title for this chapter three really captures um, the story surrounding Kiva uh, baptism. Thank you. And um, moving on to chapter four, um, chapter four leads us to the new phase of Kiva life and mission. And this chapter stands out as it is filled with so many fascinating stories of Kibabulaya and Christians in Toro, Uganda, such as teachers and women converts. So as I turned the pages over, the sins from the book of Acts in the Bible kept coming to my mind, and I believe I'm not the only one. You also mentioned in the later chapter that Kibabalaya was uh, often seen as today's Apostle Paul. And another reason for my fascination with this chapter is the in-depth analysis that reveals the political and spiritual dynamics that shaped Kibabalaya's earlier missions in Toro. Um, as you masterfully show, these two dimensions are entangled and intertwined in the development of Christianity in the region. So Dr. Wildwood, um, would you tell us um, about these political and spiritual backdrops in Toro, especially in Mboga, and how these dynamics shaped Kiva Blya's missions approach leading to his success?
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm sure uh, Apollo will be delighted to hear that uh, uh, this his work reminded you of the Book of Acts. I think, as you say, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, he's really trying to be, you know, to model himself on St. Paul mm. by itinerating around different places um, and working at his own missionary journeys, uh, going back to places uh, over and over again um and, and trying to expand the, the 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 geographical spread of of where he goes um, so i i think i i really did try to in this book to to weigh up both all, all aspects of this both the sort of political underpinnings which enabled him to do certain things and to be um aware of those because previous biographers tended not not to see those, not to or not to consider them as being terribly important, um, whilst also recognising the um, the way in which there was a uh, a real um, discussion going on about uh, where people could put their trust, um, what authority. Uh, uh, Apollo had and how, uh, and um, which spiritual path, which uh, god uh, one should follow, uh, and, and who was going to help. So, in many ways, uh, in this, I'm trying to get this sort of very pragmatic view. Uh, Kivabulaya arrives in various places, and a people are, are kind of open and hospitable to start off with, and they're trying to work out hmm. Is this person um, giving us some really good insights here into our lives and into why perhaps things aren't going so well? And should we take him seriously? Or is he actually here? uh, Is his presence actually destructive because he's he's saying um, we should only worship one God? Um, that that God is Ruhanga in in this area. Um, that's the name of the creator God amongst the Baganda was Katonda. Um, so he's saying you should worship the created God, but all other gods, yeah, you, you need to forget. They're not not proper gods. So is this is this where we've been going wrong, not following this, or is he actually by by speaking this actually bringing misfortune upon us? And so in 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 Boga, which is at this time um not really under colonial authority and the border is clearly delineated um only in about nineteen o eight and and it brought into effect in nineteen ten and and at that point it becomes part of um at the Belgian Congo, um, but it, it's not delineated. And yet, there are these forces, including uh, mutineers from the the Belgian colonial force, causing a great deal of, of misery and upset. There's also these uh, that the colonial forces are trying to um, d- abolish the slave trade that's going on, but they bring their own misery, if you like, upon upon the populations. Um, and so. Um Kibubalaya is being weighed in this very pragmatic way of is he offering something good, bad, or indifferent? And and so there's one point where he's welcomed by the people of Mboga, and another point where they t- the, the a number of them, not all of them, turn against him um, because um there's an accident and the chief sister is killed. Um uh, she falls on a on a spear. Um, but it's a spear that one of his associates belonged to one of his associates, um, and so there. Th- you know, here is you know he, this is a clear sign that he is bringing destruction, and so they turn against him. But in the earlier biographies, this is all hagiography. You know, this is persecution narrative. So it, it's and and, and clearly Kipabali himself is doing some work on this. Am I <laughs> am I doing the right thing here? Uh, and and he has. There's a number of events which I describe, but he has a vision of, of of Jesus, which assures him that he is doing the right thing. And it's something that he refers to later in life. Um, uh, he's very interested in supporting women. And it, it's clear that uh, at least um, in parts of Toro and Mborga, um women are attracted to the message that he and other evangelists, he's not the first evangelist in this area, he's not the only one. And um, he just becomes a very prominent one because he, m- many of them have a short time as an evangelist and he expands his time. But, um, he, he, you know, th- this message about freedom is attractive. It's also attractive to some of the enslaved people or indentured labourers in Mboga who've come from the forest. They're also interested in this. And so, again, for some of the political elite, Kivabulaya is. Um, sowing destruction. Uh, he's, he's disordering things. But for other people, he's giving hope. And yet also at this time, you know, he's no radical. He may be preaching this stuff, which is upsetting, but he's working, he's trying to work with chiefs, because he knows that's his way in. So he comes in, he speaks with the chiefs, he attends their ceremonies, he doesn't drink the beer, but he he sings or he plays music or that kind of thing, joins in, gives an opportunity to speak to people, uh, speaks to women who are interested uh, in, his, in his message. And then when his message sort of begins to talk about well, we're all equal in the sight of God. We all need to repent. Uh, we're, we we can all be offered this eternal life. Um, and once that happens, we shouldn't be keeping people in any form of slavery. Then some of the chiefs begin to get a bit um, upset. And indeed, of course, their mediums are put out of business in a couple of cases because people, you know, follow what Kibbalah is saying. And so, you know, that's also... Sort of part of this conflict that comes with the introduction of Christianity.
1: Well, thank you, Dr. Um Lovewood, for, for that answer. Um, in segueing into now chapter five, it sheds light on um Kivabulaya's continued mission um in Toro, focusing on his understanding of Christian conversion. Um as you Insightfully explained for, for Kivabulaya, conversion is, first, um, a radical change, both individually and socially, and second, it is a new belonging to a global uh, community. And he enacted this kind of Christian conversion in his life and mission, you know, cutting across boundaries between politics and religion, you know, nationalism and cosmopolitanism and cultural and spiritual. Here I found the concept of Christian cosmopolitan vision very helpful to understand uh, Kivabalaya's mission, uh, especially his commitment to the Bible translation. So, Dr. Aldway, would you talk more about you know, cosmopolitan Christian vision and how it shaped and his emphasis on the vernacular uh, Bible translations?
2: Yeah, certainly. So in, in many ways, I think here, uh, Kivabulaya was in uh, complete agreement with the general uh, Protestant missionary view of the time. Um, and not only was it in agreement with it, but he pushed it so much further than some of the missionaries wanted to go. Um, So there was um, a real sense that people should have the the Bible in their heart language, Uh, that is, their their mother tongue, the language that they're most familiar with, and that um, Christian mission, uh, all sorts of different societies, um, often supported by the Bible society, would facilitate this, and that they would start with the gospel, uh, work through the New Testament, then the Psalms, and then slowly get their way to the Old Testament. Um, and uh, there were lots of impediments. It's it takes a while to learn new languages, and um, you know. Missionaries really worried about books like Judges, which indeed I think we all should. Um, you know, we're getting into the wrong ha- getting into the wrong hands. You know, so they, there's this kind of superiority, like, well, you know, European missionaries can read Judges, but I'm not sure, or or or, or any of those history historical books, Kings, uh, Chronicles. Um, but you know, maybe we need to sort of get people used to the New Testament before before they they look at the Hebrew Bible. So. Um, uh, there was there was a sort of slowness to translate. And in Uganda there's a there was um a desire to emphasize Luganda. Luganda, you know, this, this big kingdom that was becoming the centre of the British Protectorate and the British Protectorate um began in 1894. Um and it's it was seen as a unifying thing. And I think this is really interesting um when you think of Christian uh, conversations, um, you know, for 2000 years in all sorts of different c- contexts, you know, the, the importance that we place on Christian unity, and yet the many reasons why it doesn't, it doesn't quite work out. And here's one, this is language, you know, do you get everybody to speak the same language, um, so that we can all communicate um, across, across nations? Or does, is, is there something special about one's own language? Of course, the Catholics are having a very different debate about language at this time, um, although they're also doing a lot of translation but not directly of biblical texts. The White Fathers were certainly um, doing biblical stories, for example. Um, so this is this is going on at a time, and Kiva is pressing for what we now call Runyoro Rotoro uh, to be... To have its entire uh, have the entire Bible and he, he does this from about 1900 he's the first person I can find who's pushing for this and even the so he writes he writes to CMS headquarters in London you know dear fellow missionaries immediately in that title he's putting himself on an equal footing and the missionaries do it back to him um, and I think that's quite important for us to notice and he's saying, you know, we really do need the entire Bible. And the missionary who translates this from Luganda to English is still not quite convinced that the entire Bible is necessary. He changes his mind eventually, but he translates what Apollo says because he recognises that Apollo has been there longer than him, uh, understands the situation longer than him, even though it, it, it seems that Apollo wasn't a particularly fluent Runyoro Rotoro speaker, he knew the importance because he'd struggled so much with Swahili. And that's what he puts in. And then he says, and there are so many other languages. So it's just saying like, well, once we've got this one, you know, we've got to keep going. And he's almost it's certainly, well, certainly involved in another language translation and possibly a third. So he pushes forward. So even though he or perhaps because his linguistic skills are, are fairly ordinary, um, he, he appreciates why people need this. And he's saying, you no, know, the two languages, people have been saying, well, they're very similar. And people say, actually, but they're not mutually comprehensible, really. Um, so, you know, you need to do this work. So, and and I think this is, you know, again, he fits in with what other people have said about this, um, this common humanity, this cosmopolitan vision that is, you know, we are all equal in the sight of God and that becoming a Christian, and, and obviously we need to emphasize that that was very much what he was saying, becoming a Christian was, um, was how one gained that equal access into the kingdom of God. But you didn't need to learn a language, a new language in order to do that. The message came to you. Um, and so we get this cosmopolitanism that is based on a sort of multilingualism um, that I think is, uh, is, is reflected in a lot of missionary writings at the time. But he's absolutely determined to carry it through. Whereas some of the some other um, missionaries were were willing to um, sort of I, I say compromise, but you know they sort of found the circumstances in which they worked pulled them in different directions.
0: Yes, thank you uh, for your answer. It really helps us to understand Kibabalaya's focus in his mission. And in next chapter, chapter six, we see um, another transition in Kibabalaya's journey from a comfortable life in Butiti to the Itri forest in Congo. Uh, But as you insightly describe, it was not just the location change, but the changes in his mission approach and ideal. And this is the period in Kivabulaya's life that made him known for his mission to the pygmies. Um, It was fascinating to learn how Kivabulaya interpreted and delivered Christian message using the people's cosmology and spirituality. And I appreciate that you pay attention to the experience of women Christians, as you mentioned in earlier chapter, and not just in this chapter, but throughout the book so do you tell us uh, more about kibubalaya's newly developed missionary strategy and ideals reflected in his mission to the pygmies and also to women in this chapter um women among the apollos children
2: okay thank you very much um yeah the 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 pygmy or the mbuti uh, as they're often called uh, or the the chua, um, Kibbalaya, in his work, uses those two terms interchangeably, although sometimes they're also used for slightly different uh, hunter-gatherer groups. Um, they were h- held a certain fascination for uh, the missionary movement as you know hunter-gatherers, they're nomadic, um, often considered sort of hard to reach. Um, and what, what interested me, and I was able to show, is that the, the Kibbalaya is, is the forefront and, and relatively successful in being able to meet the Mbuti and to um speak with them Um, everybody is amazed by his ability to do that including <laughs> including those people closest to him those young men and women who uh, work in the forest with him most of whom are for Mboga and have often looked down upon uh, the hunter-gatherers um, and and so he's trying to teach them something new he stays in the Mbuti camps, um, uh, and he tries to come alongside them. And um, interestingly, although he's very much into social change and establishing schools and, and all those kind of things we might expect, when it comes to the Mbuti, he doesn't expect them to settle down, he doesn't particularly expect them to attend school and when they tell them his their, their their stories about how they understand life he says that they are closest to christianity than anyone else and and when he goes back to um the kingdom of buganda and he's talking to his own people he um He compares his own people unfavourably with the Mbuti and saying the Mbuti are much better at this. And and again, this is a this is a kind of missionary trope that we often ignore. You know, there's this assumption that that missionaries impose their own cultural norms on uh, another society and to a certain extent they do but they're actually quite critical of their own cultural norms and this is what makes them kind of interesting people in between so he comes back he's very critical of how his own people are acting and behaving and he uses the Mbuti who are curious about Christianity at best uh so not not these sort of born-again Christians and um, that he's you know, we' kind of hoping for, but he uses their style of life and um, to say, "Well, look, they do better, they're better they they treat their wives better, they treat their children better now uh, we, we don't necessarily need to say that that is actually the case to understand this is quite an interesting thing that's going on here, and particularly that treating the women better seems to be something that uh, exercised Kibra and we know that um women's roles changed with the arrival of christianity in this uh and um I, I, pe- people often say well for, for, for better or for worse and that's a very good question and i think it depended on who you were um but one thing we do know is that christian men who became christians um in uh buganda in the early years were worried that they had treated their wives badly and they tried to do different things to treat their wives better. So sometimes they would carry things to the fields and the women would work in the fields or maybe sometimes even the men worked alongside them. And this was seen as being quite a radical step and a a sign that somebody, a man, had become truly Christian. Um, We also, I I mentioned about the, 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 the poorer women who would have been enslaved or who, who were at risk of enslavement, um, being attracted to Apollo's message. But we also see some quite prominent people changing their roles. So we see women at court. Now, I think with the arrival of colonialism, they they are actually losing political power. And they it seems they may well have had more political power than the colonialists and indeed the European missionaries thought. Um, But they are also changing their power, so they still have an awful lot of social cachet, uh, and and people like the queen mothers in these kingdoms. Once they become Christians, take on these uh, roles of setting up schools and nurseries and, and so forth, and they give women. Eventually, you know, very soon they're giving women independent incomes, in. A society that is now monetarized, if you like. So you know, there's all sorts of questions there, um, and uh, but but one woman, for example, was possibly a a, a medium at the court of uh, Kasagama, who's the the king of uh, Toro, and um, she becomes a, a missionary as well. So there are these ways in which women took the best of the situation that that were offered and tried to push it. It doesn't mean that uh, they were uh, kind of um, feminists in the way that we understand in the 21st century, nor was the Christian message propounding that kind of thing. But there was certainly a real question about it. Christianity ought to be better for everyone and it ought to be materially better for women. Um, How far it was successful, I try and tease out by looking at different uh, case studies in in that particular location. Um, But I think it's probably quite a mixed picture and it depends with what marker you view it. Are you viewing it with the marker of uh, those historical individuals who are trying to uh, move from here to there? Are they that successful? Or are you measuring it with the marker of uh, 21st century liberal feminism? And, um, you know, and, and you can measure it with both of those markers. Um, but I think it's you need to be clear about as a historian, I think you need to be clear about what you do.
1: Um
2: so I, I hope that's answered those those two questions.
1: Thank you, Dr. Wildwood, for that answer. And this continued journey in helping us, um, you know, we... Re- investigate and examine the life of Kiva Bulaya, you know, taking both a micro and macro level approach to what was going on during this time period. And also how the the wonderful work that you've done in unveiling the interesting political, and religious dimensions uh, within this context of East Africa. And, and it has been just a fabulous uh, time in learning more about um, your work and also this context. And we are already, you know, Heading towards the last chapter of your book, Chapter Seven, um, which takes on uh, such a challenging task to summate the life of a figure like Kivabulaya, and the task is done, you know, very beautifully. Um, Kivabulaya indeed, you know, had many names, as you listed in the chapter: a great Ganda missionary, a brave heart, Christ-like, and an apostle. And you well captured the underlying mission in Kivabulaya's life as a mediator. Um, this chapter highlights four areas in Kiva mediating roles, the itineration, the healing race relations and the translations as well while each offers helpful perspectives to understand Kiva mission, I found your interpretation of his healing ministry very illuminating and I know we mentioned towards the beginning of our interview, um, this podcast you, we've briefly talked about that but Um, Kivabulaya's healing ministry is mediating the divine power, um, not owning the power, as you have put it. And for him, healing is a tool for African Christians to claim their agency beyond um, the European colonial systems of care. So I would greatly appreciate it, uh, Dr. Aldo, if you could briefly tell us about Kivabulaya's mediating roles in those areas, you know, hopefully more about the meaning of healings and miracles uh, within, you know, Kivabulaya's life and mission.
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, it did, it, it struck me that he's very much this um, middle figure and there was so much more that one could say but the book was already long enough so I had to uh um I had to sort of uh bring this um out somehow and so yes the fact that he's moving around that he's meeting you know physically moving to different villages at uh, different language groups uh working with a whole variety of people uh in order to communicate um and, uh, and understand, you know, that's a sort of very physical, uh, you know, mediation in his his, his itineration on foot. Um, uh, and I, I think healing, you know, also is part of that mediation. So, yes, in many ways, um, Kibbe Walaya signed himself up to a kind of missionary form of healing. He was getting uh, medical supplies from the the hospital. This is towards the end of his life. It was been set up in Fort Portal uh, in the Kingdom of Toro, um, uh, run by CMS missionaries. And he he was getting his medical supplies from there. It seems to be fairly basic stuff. We know he cured himself from malaria. You know, he had things for cleaning wounds, um, basic pain relief. Um, but And he also invited some of the CMS missionaries to come and give sort of clinics. They often had difficulty crossing the border because of the relationships between the British and Belgian governments. But when they were able, he invited them to come and there'll be huge numbers of people that were being seen very, very rapidly in an attempt to offer some basic uh, remedies um, to them he would use his own money at times to send people to the hospital if they were very very sick and um, but he would also come alongside people and pray for them so prayer was was uh, you know a significant part of his healing and he's also um has these times where he prays so under uh, hurra who eventually became the um archbishop of um Uh, the 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 province of um what was then Zaire and Rwanda and Burundi in the 1980s and when he was a little boy and this story was circulating um, from the moment he was a child people thought he was going to die and people had already come to mourn it was already wailing and Kibabalaya took him and put him on his bed and prayed for him and again you can really hear the biblical resonances coming out here um uh, if you know sort of Jairus's daughter or the widow um uh, and the prophet Elijah and all these kind of stories are kind of resonant in this but what i found particularly interesting is that in his own work he's he's quite cautious about his healing ministry he's not uh, he doesn't um say a lot about it and he's certainly modest about his achievements he tries not to sensationalize but his immediate followers who are all interviewed in the 1950s about their works bring a different perspective they really see him as a as a sort of charismatic figure a a, a prophetic figure a man of god and these are all words that we hear still uh, in, in African forms of Christianity, again, quite prominent, um, who was mediating this power, as you've already put it. Um, and they are much more, his, his his immediate followers after his death are much more willing to give him um, a kind of conduit of power than than Kivabalaya allows for himself. Um, so um I, I do think that this is quite an interesting one. I think here we see resonances of prior practice of, of spiritual expertise. Giveable, I would have been very concerned not to look too close like a, 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 a figure from the past but he was also trying to communicate. So one way of doing that was to make these connections and probably did it quite effort- effortlessly. It was part of, of, of who he was and it was certainly part of who his followers were and they were very keen to Uh, I mean, not directly, they don't directly say, oh, he's following in the mold of traditional spiritual experts. But the way
0: they talk Mm -hmm. about it is very, very simple. Thank you, Dr. Wildwood. And thank you for walking us through Chapter 7 and your book. And your book really brings the past into life with vivid narratives and stories. And I would highly recommend uh, your book. Uh, for anyone who are interested in uh, learning East African Christianity and also um, um, anyone who wants to learn about a life of a well-loved and much-loved and well-recognized missionary and your book really provides a good introduction, not only a good introduction, but also deeper understanding of the past. So as we head towards the end of our interview, there are two questions we would like to ask you. And that is, first, what do you hope uh, students um, and scholars working on world Christianity will take from your book and what new doors for um, research, would you say your book opens up? Thank you.
2: Well, I, I hope that anyone working on world Christianity will um, will take from this kind of research what one can do to uncover um, voices that have not been properly heard. So, I have. Kivubaliya, we're very fortunate to have this bunch of resources. Um, they may not be there for everybody, but I think we need to search th- search further in the archives to see if they're there. I think there's also quite a lot of triangulation that we've done. So I met quite a lot of Apollo's associates as I as I went along, and um, who perhaps there isn't enough to say to make a new biography, but who present uh, their work in different ways. Um, I also used a lot of unpublished um, masters and uh, bachelors dissertations um, that are in Macquarie University and other universities in order to do this because there's some very very good work that uh, by students so so don't think that your work is uh, unimportant if you if you are able to do this kind of early ethnography ethnographic research or you know of uh, some documents that are perhaps in some some aunties cupboard somewhere um, and that, that, that talk about an early uh, Christian movement then think about that as a resource how could you use it how could you triangulate that with other resources um, I, I hope that people see the importance of trying to do these stories from the bottom up as I've tried to do Um, I think one of the things I haven't, uh, and and certainly it was a criticism somebody put to me that I haven't really talked about colonialism or the British Empire, I mean, I mention it as a fact, I say how it intrudes. But to to my mind, there is a lot and lot of good work on that kind of thing, which takes the stories of those people who are most powerful politically, uh, and shows how they intrude on the affairs of others. I've tried to take that work but tell a different a different story uh, and use the archives to sort of direct me so use apollo's work in a criti- you know in a in a appropriately critical manner but to direct me uh, every turn Um, And so, you know, I didn't say anything about the First World War, for example, I think it comes up in one sentence, because simply the archives weren't telling me that so I could, I could say that it happened, I could say certain things that I knew about it. But I thought, well, actually, if uh, there is so much in the archives that do tell me things to start looking for other big topics seemed um, to to be kind of taking myself away from a, a particular story. So I think there will be some criticisms on the book about that. Um, but it would have had to be in a much bigger book to include that. Without doing violence to Kivubalaia's story, and I think one of the con- one of the real tricky things that we have in world Christianity is when we're looking at these really hot topics, and they're very important on issues of colonialism, and race, and and so forth, is not to um, um, is to hear the voices of people who were actually experiencing in the situation historically. Um, and to be attentive to them while being attentive to these uh, macro things as well. And I think that's quite difficult to do, um, but I hope I've managed it reasonably well in this book. And so new research, um, I mean, I am very pleased that you mentioned the source book, The Archive of a Uganda Missionary, because I think for people um, dipping their toe in this kind of research, uh, and wanting a guidance, I mean, there are other things out there, but I, I think that re- using the source book and the monograph together might give you some way. And you can you can maybe critique how I have um, either presented the source material or interpreted it in the monograph. You know, which which hones people's skills. So you know, I don't I don't mind people doing that kind of uh, of work there's obviously the the, the source book cannot replace actually seeing the documents in the uh, in the archive in their original form but I think it 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 highlights some of the issues each each set of um, documents has a little introduction there's quite a big introduction about if you like the problems of the sources what what, what, you know they they have their own inherent biases in the way that they're collected and so forth so I look at that as well and so I hope that becomes part of what we do. So I think more more biography might be interesting, but I don't think we have to do a a biographical method. It may be that people can find a a sort of community or an institution or a movement and use the same kind of themes that weave their way through. Um, So Uh, Yeah, I'm excited and would be extremely gratified um, if this book opened up new research and I'd love to hear
1: from people. Well, Dr. Raulwood, thank you for um, that answer and for your time today to discuss uh, your excellent Uh, work. And we have thoroughly enjoyed today's conversation with you. Um, As we wrap things up, our final question for you today is, what are you currently working on? And what future projects do you hope to uh, explore?
2: Well, thank you. And, And very briefly, something a little bit different. So once I'd set this project down I was already involved in a very contemporary project with some long-standing colleagues in Congo and looking at um, the relationship uh, or or how faith communities had responded to the COVID-19 pandemic in northeast Congo and these colleagues um, uh, Amudababa and Yassa Way. Um, I'm going to be working with them again to kind of tie up this project, um, and I shall, um, uh, all being well, be in Congo in February. But it's leading me as a social historian to think further back. So I've done this very contemporary project to think, well. What gets us to these these questions of how we deal with a pandemic, which who are the actors, the White Fathers, uh, very prominent in this particular region um, also Pentecostal Christianity um, also traditional herbal medicine and traditional practices. So where does c- can we can we construct a kind of history of faith and health? That's my question as I embark on study leave um, And I'm not quite sure where it's taking me, but I have lots of leads and some archives to dig around in. And so I'm quite excited about um, seeing where that that goes.
1: Well, Dr. Wao, those sounds like excellent plans and projects um, in the future that we look forward to reading more of your works as well. And once again, thank you so much uh, for being on the podcast today.
2: Been a, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank,
1: thank you, you for all your questions. Yes. And thank you, everyone, so much for listening to today's episode in which we explored the mission of Apollo Kebabulaya, Religious Encounter and Social Change in the Great Lakes uh, from 1865 to 1935, written by Emma Wildwood and published by James Curry Press, imprint of Boydell and Brewer, uh, published in 2020. This is your host, uh ho Choi
0: and Sunyoung Lee
1: Please stay tuned for the next episode on the new books on world Christianity.